So, sometimes I think that when pastors preach, people kind of think that it just, it's academic. You know, it's sort of, you know, you're just coming up with a study and preaching it. But so often the things that we preach are, are the things that the Lord is working in our own lives. For example, you know, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about Lazarus and talking about kind of the Lord's sovereignty and just the way the Lord has his own sense of timing that doesn't necessarily coincide with our timing. And, um, and this week, this weekend really, I really experienced that in my own life. Um, Friday afternoon at lunchtime, I always go to this uh, jiu-jitsu class, this lunchtime jiu-jitsu class. So I'm there and I'm working out and um, the coach comes and interrupts the class and gets me and he says, hey, your wife just called. She's been trying to get a hold of you. She has a little emergency. And so I went home, and she tells me that she's, her, her heart's beating really fast. And, um, and so we go to the, um, go to the doctor, and, and her heart rate is really elevated. And so the doctor was, or the nurse was really concerned. And so she calls in the doctor, and while we were waiting, her, her heart rate went back down, and, and she was having a little bit of abdominal pain and stuff, so they gave her some medicine and sent her home. Well... Later that evening, well, I was back at jiu-jitsu again because I got interrupted the first time, and I was at family class with the boys, and, um, and so I get home from that, and she says, my heart's doing that thing again, and it's beating really fast, and so we go to the emergency room, and her heart rate was really, it's like, it was like beating at 214 beats a minute, which is crazy, and um, so, so they, they, they weren't super concerned at first. And so I'm, okay, okay. And so they, they say, we're going to give her a shot of medicine because the heart's basically an electrical system and it's caught in this feedback loop and so it's not slowing down. So we're going to give her this medicine that's going to kind of just reset the heart. And then as they're getting ready, they roll in the crash cart. And I'm fairly pragmatic. I think it's just a precaution, you know. But So they give her the medicine. It drops back down. And they say that they want to give her a um, CT scan just to make sure that there's nothing going on. And so they go through the whole list of questions, you know, and, and we've got to give you a pregnancy test, and we've got to do all this other stuff before we can give that to you. And she says, okay, whatever. Well, the doctor comes back in, and a uh, um, few minutes later, he says, um, you're positive. I said, what? Your pregnancy test is positive. <laughs> wow. I, we're, we're 45. And turns out she's five months pregnant. With triplets. No, that part's not true. <laughs> There's only one bun in the oven. <laughs> I made that part up. But, um, yeah, crazy. Just like two weeks ago, we were joking about, what would happen if we got pregnant now, <laughs> you know? And, oh, no, we were, we'll be so tired for the rest of our lives. <laughs> yeah. The Lord's funny. So anyway, the Lord's timing is not always our timing. And um, <laughs> so I would appreciate if you guys would keep us in prayer as we, uh, yeah, it's apparently, apparently, 
<laughs> Let's pray before we get into the word, guys. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just, we just thank you for who you are, Lord. And we just hear love for us and your hilarious sense of timing. Uh, we just pray that as we open up John chapter 12 this morning, that you'll speak to our hearts, Lord. You'll just draw us close to you, Lord, as we, as we look at worship and what it means. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days <coughs> before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Over the next few months, as we continue through John's gospel, we're going to hear the term, the Passover, quite a bit. And you may remember last week that we talked about this the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, is really the, the final week of Jesus' life. We're less than a week from Jesus' crucifixion at this point. And so, so as we open up chapter 12 here, this is probably on a Saturday, right? And Jesus would be crucified the following Friday. And so John's 21 chapters, I think, and so the remaining 10, 9 chapters somewhere, there's 24 chapters, isn't it? I'm a little embarrassed all of a sudden that I don't know how many chapters are in John. Um, anyway, the next 10 or 11 of those chapters are all crammed in to this last week. And, and as we look at these next 10 chapters, we keep seeing the Passover reference, the Passover talked about. So I want to take a few minutes and kind of talk about the Passover before we get into the heart of the text, because it really plays into a lot of, of the things that are going on here. So remember back in Exodus, remember the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they're in Egypt and they're enslaved. Remember a few hundred years before that, Joseph, his um, older brothers all wanted to kill him. Remember the nice ones said, no, let's sell him into slavery instead. And so he gets sold into slavery. And remember, he ends up getting shipped off and he ends up landing in Egypt there. And through a series of events, remember, he ends up rising to a position of prominence in, in Potiphar's house. And then he gets thrown in prison for a while. He gets out of prison and becomes the vice president, pretty much. Right? The second command of, of the whole country. And before long, his whole family ends up moving there. And, and once they were there, they began to prosper. And his family grew rapidly. But over the course of time, there was a new dynasty. There was sort of a, sort of a, a power shift. And this, what's known as the Hyksos dynasty, a new dynasty of pharaohs came into power. And they weren't familiar with the Hebrew people. And they weren't familiar with what a blessing the Hebrew people had been to Egypt. And so all the people were enslaved. The new pharaohs were looking and they said, wow, look at how many of them there are. And look how many of us there are. If an enemy comes in, they might side with the enemy and they're going to overthrow us. So the Hebrew people's property and their rights were stripped away and they all became slaves. 
And so remember, fast forward a little bit after that, Moses is out in the wilderness. Remember, and the Lord speaks to Moses. And he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And remember how the whole thing unfolds. Pharaoh refuses. The Lord ends up sending the plagues. Remember, there's the frogs. And there's the locusts. And there's the boils. And there's the lice. And Pharaoh continues to refuse. And so remember, finally, that tenth plague. The Lord says, okay, here's what's going to happen. If you don't let my people go, I'm going to strike down all of your firstborn children. And you may recall that the Lord made a provision so that the Jews, the Hebrew people, could be spared from that final plague. But remember, what they had to do is they had to go out and they had to select a spotless lamb. And they would find this spotless little lamb and they would bring it into their home. And they had to keep it in their home and inspect it for three days. And if they found that the lamb was without blemish, that he was without defect, they would take that lamb and they would kill it. And without breaking any of its bones, they would butcher it and eat it. But they would take the blood of that spotless lamb and they had to take it and splash it on their doorposts and on the top of the door and at the little basin at the bottom of the door. It's kind of, hmm, in the shape of a cross, which is pretty interesting. But from that time forward, every year, the Jews would commemorate this Passover. And it became an annual feast and something that, that everybody took part of. They would take this spotless lamb, they would inspect it for three days inside their home, and then they would take it to the temple and it would be inspected by the priests, and then they would sacrifice it. So among the Jews, everyone wanted to spend Passover in Jerusalem. And even today, at the end of Passover, for any Jews who are part of the diaspora, the people who aren't there in Jerusalem, they always say, next year in Jerusalem. Right? This was a, um, an annual pilgrimage. And there was an interesting stipulation in the law there had to be at least 10 people in the family in order for them to have their own Passover lamb. And if there weren't 10 people in the family, they had to invite their neighbors over for dinner to make sure there were at least 10 people. And so Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives us some interesting information. He says that one of the years, it wasn't this exact year that we're talking about, but one of the years around the time of Christ, the census was taken, and he said that there were 246,400 lambs that were slaughtered at Passover. Now, some people have accused Josephus, this historian, of, of exaggerating a little bit. So even if we cut that number in half to be conservative, that's 123,000 lambs. That's a lot of, that's a lot of sheep. And if you do the math, that's a minimum of 1.2 million people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And normally Jerusalem was a lot smaller. The, 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 the population would fluctuate, but most historians estimate that the population of Jerusalem at that time was between 50 and 100,000. So at Passover, the city is packed. Everyone has guests sleeping on the floor of their house. You know, it's... Um, it's a, it's, they're, they're camped out on the rooftops. It's this great time of, of celebration. 
And as we look at this Passover, obviously you can't talk about the Passover without talking about Jesus. Because the whole thing, it, it, it's just packed full of all this prophetic symbolism in there. And every detail, every aspect of the Passover, it all points to Jesus Christ. From the blood on the door to, to no broken bones to this three-day inspection to it being a spotless lamb. All these things. Remember John the Baptist when Jesus comes out to the Jordan River to be baptized. Remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Making a very pointed connection to that Passover there. That Jesus was going to be slaughtered as our Passover lamb. And it's a very interesting study for those of you guys who are inclined to study such things. Anyway, verse 1, it's six days before the Passover. And people are beginning to arrive in the city. And so Jerusalem is, is, is filled with excitement at this point. People are gathering for the feast. And, and there's talk around town that, that the Messiah might finally be there. Remember the Jewish people at this point They've been waiting for, for hundreds of years for the arrival of the Messiah. I mean, thousands of years, really. We first see the mention of the Messiah in, um, in Genesis chapter 3. And so for, for a very long time, the Jewish people have been awaiting the arrival of the, the Mashiach, the, 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 the Christos, the, the anointed one. And so there's word going around. There's talk of, of these miracles. And people being raised from the dead. And, and the feeding of the masses. And, and the cleansing of the lepers. And so you can imagine how the whole city is just abuzz with, with all this stuff going on. And it's in this setting that Jesus arrives in Bethany. And remember Bethany is about two miles outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. So it's a suburb. I mean, it's, it's Kenmore to Seattle, right? It's just sort of on the outskirts there. And so Jesus goes to the home of Lazarus, the man whom he had raised from the dead. And remember last week in verse 57, we saw that the high priest had, had issued a warrant for Jesus' arrest. Right? It, was, it was now official public policy that Jesus was to be put to death. And so we saw that Jesus left town for a bit. But now his time has come. So Jesus returns to Jerusalem, to Bethany. And he puts himself in a dangerous position here, knowing that the Jewish leadership basically has put a hit out on him, right? They want him dead. And, and, and I love this about Jesus, just his, his boldness, right? That he's not afraid. He knows what's coming, but he knows that the Father is in control and has sent him on this mission, and he just goes and does it. Verse 2. We're only looking at three verses today, by the way, in case you're worried that we're only at verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So picture the scene here, guys. Jesus arrives at Lazarus' house. And there's a dinner served. And, and, and it's not just a dinner. This is a, a, a banquet in Jesus' honor. This is a feast in honor of Jesus. 
celebrating the fact that he had just raised their brother from the dead. And so we see here Lazarus is there eating around the table of Jesus, reclining at the table, it says. In those days, on special occasions, they had a, um, a low table, like a long coffee table that they would gather around. And they would typically, at these feasts, they would sit on the ground and they had cushions that they would recline against. And, and that's how they ate. And guys, I think most of us understand this. There's nothing nicer than laying down to eat, right? Laying on the ice, the couch, a little bowl of ice cream on your belly, bag of Cheetos at your side. I mean, and it's biblical, just, just so you're aware. So they're reclining around the table. Martha's running back and forth in the kitchen cooking, serving the food, doing what Martha does. Right? We've seen through the text that Martha's a doer. And that was her gift. And she's exercising her gifts here to serve the people of God. And then we find Mary at the feet of Jesus. And it's interesting. There's a few different Marys in the New Testament. But every time we see this Mary in Scripture, you see where she's at? She's at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 10, we find her at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. John chapter 11, we find her at the feet of Jesus, weeping. Here in chapter 12, we find her sitting at Jesus' feet, worshiping. Lazarus is fellowshipping, Martha is serving, and Mary is worshiping. And so Mary, she takes this little jar. It's probably a little alabaster box. And it held about 12 ounces, you know, basically a Coke can, right? A little Coke can-sized bottle of perfume. And she pours it on Jesus' feet. And that might not mean a lot to us. 12 ounces of perfume, that's what, two or three bottles of perfume, right? And you know, perfume, it's not cheap, but it's not super expensive, right? You go to Ross and it's 30 bucks for a bottle of cologne anyway. How much does perfume cost for a nice bottle? Depends what you like. All right, well, so see, you're looking at $100, maybe $200 worth of perfume, something like that. And so we can kind of get that mindset that this is a sweet act. It was kind of expensive, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But that's kind of wrong thinking. This particular perfume, it was very rare, and it was very expensive. It says that it was made of nard. And nard is a flower that grew at high altitudes in the mountains. And they would go pick this flower, and, and they would extract this, this oil from the roots. And we learn in the next verse that this little, this little bottle of perfume, it was worth a year's wages. Some of your Bibles say that it was worth 300 denarii. And a denarii was a typical day's wage for a laborer. And some of your translations, like the New Living Translation, just say it was a year's wages. And so this was a, this was a very lavish gift. This was an expensive thing. Were Mary and her family rich? Did they just have bottles of nard laying around the house? Could be. And we know that they weren't poor, but this was a significant thing. Most likely, this perfume, it wasn't just something she cracked open on Saturday nights before she went out. Right? This was, this was probably a family heirloom. This was a, something that was passed down from from generation to generation, from mother to daughter. 
And it's very likely that this bottle of perfume was her dowry. Remember in those days, a husband would have to pay a bride price to the family of the bride in order to get the bride's hand in marriage. You know, three goats and a camel and two cows and a partridge and a pear tree, right? But the bride, she would have to bring a dowry along with her. And it would be money or goods that would be used to care for the wife in the event that the husband died. Or in the event that the husband divorced her and just kicked her out and left her on her own, it was something that she could use to provide for herself. And so every woman who wanted to be well married had to have a good dowry. And this was most likely Mary's dowry. This is, this is what she had. This little bottle of perfume, this family heirloom, was her whole future. And she takes this thing, and she probably had to break it open, and she pours out the whole thing on Jesus' feet. And then it says she takes her hair, and she wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair. And notice what John says. He notes that the whole house was filled with the scent. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. The whole place was filled with the fragrance of Mary's worship. And I want to spend a couple minutes this morning and, and, and look a little deeper at this act of worship on Mary's part and see if there isn't something that we can learn about the nature and, and the heart of worship. The first thing I want to note is this. Mary's act of worship cost her something. Her worship cost her. Her worship was a sacrifice. Right? Mary had to give something of herself in her worship of Jesus. It says in Hebrews 13, 15, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. A sacrifice of praise. What does that mean? How is, how is singing a couple of catchy choruses on Sunday morning a sacrifice? Now listen, for those of you guys who are newer to the fellowship here, I often will kind of touch on some of the, the meanings of the words in the original languages. And I don't want you to be deceived. I don't know Koine Greek. I'm not that smart. I'm smart enough to read people who know Koine Greek. But I, but I love words, and I love etymology, and I love understanding the roots of our language and see how it connects to the, to the Greek and the Latin, and, you know, etc. And so this word for worship here is an interesting word. In Koine Greek, the, the, the primary word here is, is proskeneu. And this word proskeneu, worship, it, its root, it means to kiss towards. And, and the idea is sort of like this. Right? If there's royalty, right, that you would, they would hold out their scepter and you would bow down and kiss the scepter. And, and, and what it really denoted was this idea of, of submission. Remember in the book of Esther, when Esther went in to see the king, remember the king held out his scepter. I was trying, is there a better word for that? His, not, not wand. Um, so he holds out his scepter, right, and she came forward and kissed the scepter. And, and, and that's sort of the idea there. 
This idea of, of submission and surrendering your free will, submitting yourself to your ruler. And, and that's really what the heart of worship is, isn't it? True worship isn't just singing a couple songs. True biblical worship is submitting yourself to the rule and the authority of God. Throwing yourself at his feet, acknowledging his goodness and your unworthiness. Paul talks about that a little bit in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. He says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the Apostle Paul here, he tells the church in Rome, he says, listen, in light of all that the Lord has done for you, because he offered himself for your sins, because he's loved you so much, because he died for you, because he's blessed you so greatly, he says, I beg you, I like the, new, or the King James, it says, I beseech ye therefore to offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice. And again it says in the King James, for this is your reasonable service. Paul says, look, in light of all that the Lord has done for you, it's only reasonable that you should live for him, that your life should be a living sacrifice. And so what Paul tells the church here is, look, don't be conformed to the world. He says, you don't have to live like the world anymore. You don't have to do what the world does. You don't have to say what the world says. You don't have to think like the world. You don't have to watch what the world listens to. You don't have to drink the same things as the world. You don't have to do any of that stuff anymore. He says, let God transform you. Let God cleanse you. Let God make you into a, a new person. But we see this. We see that true worship, true submission to the Lord, it's costly. It costs us. So often we think of worship as is what we do while, while we're waiting for the Bible study to start, right? Worship is what we do while we wait for the latecomers to arrive and collect offerings. And music, to be sure, is a great part of worship. It, it's through music that we're able to express ourselves, express our hearts, our, our, our love of the Lord through song. But true worship is so much more than just some songs. And I personally am so grateful that worship isn't just music. Because some people have great natural musical abilities. My son Isaiah, man, he is so packed full of music, I can't believe it. Constantly dancing and singing and drumming on everything. Mean, he's, he's like, he's a born musician. I can't sing a note. I lip sync to the glory of God. Right? And I can... I can barely clap on, I have to kind of watch, it's, it's terrible. And how do people like us worship if it's just music? But it isn't just music. Worship is a heart issue. Worship is a, a submission issue. It's an issue of surrendering to the Lord. We see here that Mary washed the feet of Jesus with her hair. And I want you to understand this, and we've talked about this before. 
foot washing in Scripture was a servant's job. Then it wasn't just a servant's job. It was the job of the lowest servant in the house, an absolutely humiliating job. Right? In those days, feet were, feet were filthy things. Right? Most of us here are wearing shoes and socks today. And even those who aren't wearing shoes and socks, we, we still live in a fairly clean environment. If I look at most of your feet, I'm not disgusted by it. Right? But in those days, the roads were filthy. Right? There are dirt roads. There's camels and horses and donkeys out there doing their business on the street. You're accidentally kicking it while you're walking. Right? And most people, they wore sandals. So feet in those days were, were dirty. They were nasty. And so Mary, she doesn't only wash Jesus' feet. She uses her hair to wash his feet. And understand this. Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians. He says that a woman's glory is her hair. And she uses that to wipe the filth off of Jesus' feet. They said this is like the, the ultimate act of humility on Mary's part here. Worship costs her something. True worship always costs us something. And, and worship by nature is sort of an all or nothing deal. Right? You can't really worship halfway. And we learn that from Mary, that she's all in here that she gave all that she had as she pours out the perfume, as she wipes it up with her hair. And, and look at this. Her, her whole future here is laid out at the feet of Jesus. She's surrendering all of her plans, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her, her prospects of marriage. It's all laid there at the feet of Jesus. She says, Lord, this is all that I have, and I'm giving it to you. Do what you will with it. Your, your will be done in my life. And I like how it notes that that fragrance filled the whole room. Worship is a sweet fragrance to the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ. Our worship rises up to the Lord like a sweet-smelling aroma. I read a while back that if you're trying to sell your house, one of the best things that you can do when people are coming to visit your house is to have cookies or bread baking in the oven. It's interesting, isn't it? So your house is filled with that, that sort of homey kind of aroma. You ever drive, I used to have to, for work, I'd have to drive through downtown kind of that Soto area a lot. And there's a bread bakery down there. And I had to drive through that all the time. And it was just bread. It wasn't even cookies or pie or anything. But it would just like entice you and it would, it would draw you in. 
And that's sort of the same idea here. Our praise, that sacrifice of worship, it it rises up to heaven like a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And John here notes that this this aroma, it was from pure nard. And I just noted that word pure there. The offerings, the sacrifices that we make to the Lord need to be pure. There was no mixed motives. There was no what I can get if I worship Jesus, what's in it for me. I think so often we pray and we worship and we come to church kind of hoping that we're going to get something for it, right? Worship isn't for what we can get. We worship because of who he is. We worship Jesus because he's worthy and because he deserves our worship. So Mary, she offers up this bottle of pure nard. And I think that purity also speaks to us, that if we're going to worship the Lord, our hearts have to be right with him. We have to be pure before the Lord. Right? If you, if you spent all last night breaking the commandments, and you're still hungover at church this morning, and you passed the night in immorality, or if you're sitting in church this morning looking at people who did those things and judging them, and you're filled with self-righteousness and pride, you might still be able to sing the songs or play the songs. But that's not pure worship to the Lord. We talked about this aroma of praise. Right? You can have, well, I'll give you an example. Um, I bought some crab pots recently, and, uh, and Gary gave me a nice little crab pot, and I've been out there all the time in the, in the water catching crabs. And so I had this little pack of fish, and I was taking it down. There was in the front seat of my truck. I was going to put it in the crab pot and go and catch some crabs. Well, as it happens, this little packet of fish that had been in my truck for a couple days broke open. And my truck was utterly disgusting from all these fish juices in there. And so I got a bunch of Febreze. Then I sprayed the Febreze all over in the truck. And you know what my truck smelled like? Rotten fish and Febreze. (laughs) You know, it it didn't help that much. (laughs) And it's sort of the same thing, right? If, If you're offering up worship and your life's full of sin, that's what it smells like to the Lord. Perfume and rotten flesh. Doesn't work very well. So we see that our worship should be humble. Our worship should cost us something. It should be pure. And lastly, I want to note that it should be bold. Unashamed. It took courage for Mary to worship like this took boldness, didn't it? There was a, a commercial that was on TV, I don't know, maybe maybe five years ago or something. And it was actually, this commercial was based on a true story. But in the commercial, there's this little kid and his mom, and they're at this concert. And they, um, they're there in this great, actually, I have his name here. His name is Jan Paderwiski. And you guys, 
pianists who are, are familiar with that. Anyway, so he comes to the U.S. and he's having this big concert. And, and he's, he's back there in the wings getting ready. And so this mom is there with her little boy who's been kind of learning to play piano. And, and during all the commotion, the little boy slips away and he sneaks on the stage. And he starts getting there on the piano. And he starts playing chopsticks because that's the only song that he knew. And the mom is just, all you mothers know how you would be, right? Just horrified. And she gets up there and she's going to try to get her son off the stage. But before it can happen, this... This pianist, he comes out, and she's all, oh, no, what's going to happen now? And so she, the, the pianist sneaks up behind the little boy and puts his arms around the little boy and starts to play with him. And the little boy's about to stop, and, 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 and um, the composer says, no, keep playing, keep playing. And so as he keeps playing his little chopsticks, as the, as the story goes, he begins to kind of play different melodies around it and creates this amazing piece of music around this little boy who's playing chopsticks. And all that happened because of this little boy's sort of naive boldness. Right? And the Lord used that to create, or the pianist used that to create something beautiful. And, and I think we see that here with Mary and her worship. She had this, this bold worship. She wasn't ashamed. She wasn't worried about what other people might think. She wasn't concerned about how she looked. She wasn't concerned with anything except honoring the Lord and glorifying Him. And I think that as we, as the body of Christ, as we as the people of God, boldly worship the Lord, he blesses it, and he magnifies it, and he uses it in, in ways that are beyond our simple offering. But we need boldness in our worship. Boldness to sing out. Boldness to, to raise our hands to the Lord. Boldness during our, 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 our corporate worship times. Boldness during our, our private devotional times. So often when we're, when we're here worshiping the Lord, we're kind of, don't want anybody to hear. Don't want anybody to see. Don't want to, man, I don't think that's the heart of God. I think even, even if you can't sing, even if you can't clap, clap out a beat to the glory of God, right? Screech to the glory of God. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for hearts that are passionate towards him. Passionate, heartfelt, expressive worship is what the Father's looking for. That's what honors him. That's the praise that's a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So we've talked a little bit about worship, talked about sacrifice, talked about submitting to the Lord. And so I just want to close off here and kind of spend some time in worship this morning. It's Communion Sunday, so as I pray, the ushers are going to come forward and pass out the elements, and we're going to spend some time in worship, spend some time seeking the face of God. Worship team, you guys want to come back up? Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. We're so grateful for the, just for these examples that you give us in Scripture. Mary and her humility and her boldness and her purity. And we pray that you would just impart that heart to us, Lord. 
Help us to be a church that has pure hearts of worship. And let that worship be just a a sweet-smelling aroma to you, Father. We ask that in your name, Jesus.